It's not hyperbolic to say that our kids are facing more sources of addiction and the mental health challenges that come with them than ever before. Opioids like fentanyl are ravaging families and communities all across the country. Most of us know people who've suffered from addiction to drugs or alcohol, but today's kids face a whole new challenge, addiction to their screens and social media feeds. Bloomberg recently published an article about over 70 lawsuits that parents have filed against social media companies just this year. It's chocked full of horror stories of anxiety, depression, eating disorders, addiction, and even suicide. So what is this ever-expanding metaverse of addictive activity doing to our kids? And what do we as parents do about it? Today's guest, Dr. Drew Pinsky, co-authored the book, The Mirror Effect, which takes a deep dive into the intersection of addiction and media mania and its implications for our kids' lives. Dr. Drew is an accomplished practicing doctor of internal medicine and an addiction specialist with multiple board certifications, who's most well known for his media career. What we were seeing in the media was a mirror of what was going on in so much of this country, and it was amplifying the issues. If I were creating the mirror effect today, I would focus it on social media and I would say, it's categorically happening. <laughs> and it's not even so much mirroring so much as inciting, you know, it's stimulating in ways that are just not healthy. Now we have the data, it's, it's associated with adverse mental health outcomes, period, end. Dr. Drew's expertise arms us with the information we need as parents to guide our kids through this increasingly addictive world. Dr. Drew, welcome to Dad Saves America. Such a privilege. I'm really excited to have you on because, well, first of all, I love doctors. My dad's a doctor. And so I wanted to start you with- sure you love, love them? Or you just like <laughs> tolerate them? Because usually people grow up in medical families. It's like, it's a thing. Oh, I yeah. mean, having a dad who's a doctor, I had one too. And it's a thing. Oh, what was your yeah. dad? He was a family practitioner. So yeah. you went basically into the same line then. Not basically, explicitly <laughs> into the same line of business. And I really, I, I went into it. I, I couldn't figure it out when I was going from, you know, uh, rotation to rotation, from specialty to specialty. Yeah. I was like, I want to be that. I want to be a neurosurgeon. I want to be a gynecologist. Then my last rotation was uh, general medicine. I thought, oh, yeah, that, that's why I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be just have as broad an experience as possible. Tell me about that. Because I yeah. think for so much of us, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be 45. Like, I grew up watching and listening to your shows. Um, and so... Most people know you as somebody who's in the media, but yeah. you're a real doctor. So tell oh, me yeah. about your actual medical background. Oh no! How did what you know? Was it just that your relationship with your dad that got you into medicine? What started it? How much time do you have? <laughs> we got lots of time. <laughs> all right. So if you need to interrupt me, please do, because this is these are yeah. long stories, and hopefully I get to all the different parts. So of course I grew up uh, with you know I want to be like dad, and my uncle was a psychiatrist, and actually my dad and uncle practiced for a little while together, then my uncle went off to become a psychiatrist. You know, I just always thought I would do what he does. It's sort of a normal kind of son. Yeah. Particularly immigrant families. You know, my my father's parents were running away from the Holodomor in Ukraine. Oh, wow. And, yeah. you know, this is, we were, and they lived in a ghetto in Chicago, and my dad was the one that got them up out of that, right? Oh, that's especially true then. That is well, and, and, and to be doctors. Jewish, Ukrainian, yeah, those, <laughs> accountant. You could be an accountant yeah, or, yeah. or a violinist. You could yeah. be a famous violinist. Well, might, might be okay, but you better be famous <laughs> or else medical school. 
So I, I did feel a lot of that pressure. When I, you know, I went to a fancy college in New England and uh, first year I killed it, but I, it was anguishing. It was hard for me. I just thought these people are way smarter than me. I'm not up for this. I can't do it. <sighs> and so for about a year I drifted and I did theater and music, all kinds of crazy stuff. And thought for a minute about becoming an opera singer because I was a pretty good singer. And uh, I thought, you know, that could be a legitimate thing. Thank God I didn't do that. Were you more of a baritone or an, an lyric baritone? Yeah. I wanted to be a dramatic baritone. I just didn't have the. I, and as a shitty musician, I mean, I'm a terrible musician. So, <laughs> so, so it's a good thing I didn't do it. But I enjoyed it. I loved it, and I still do love it. So it's a fun thing to have. And my mom was an opera singer too, so I was exposed to that stuff through her, oh, wow. I guess. And I always hated it until I found my way to it, and all of a sudden I so liked you, it. So you, you really are then kind of a merge of your mom uh, and your dad. Yeah, yeah. And and it's interesting. I have a son that's kind of very similarly inclined to between me and my wife. It's kind of wild to watch. Didn't know it. I mean, I was not consciously aware of any of this. Anyway, I became very, very unhappy in college after about a year. I was drifting. I really was, I got very depressed. I started having panic attacks. I was mishandled in terms of how I was treated. And I vowed never let that happen to another adolescent again. Yeah. That should not happen. And do you mean mishandled medically? or Medically, just no. just terrible management. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm having disabling panic attacks and the the mental health services at Amherst College was in the bell tower, like in the belfry. <laughs> and I went up there thinking, I, I couldn't tell if I was having a seizure or a mental health problem, but I at least knew enough to go up there and ask for help. And they go, well, first let's make sure it's not a medical problem, right thing to do. Yep. And the medical doctor looked at me like, hey, you need to get your act together. Just start taking long walks in the woods. And I was like, I, 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 I've, tried, I've tried everything. I've tried, of course, it was just terribly mismanaged. So that's one of the reasons I got interested in adolescent health and mental health, because yeah. I had a major issue and it was the suffering that I had was unnecessary and prolonged. Anyway, as a result of it, I became very unhappy and uh, contemplated maybe those science courses were really what I'm meant for. And literally the second I just allowed that thought to enter my mind, I felt better. Like literally just with that thought. And so I went back now as a junior in college and I had to hit the ground running. Well, right, because you're not set up with any of the prerequisites. I'd done a couple, but not the way I needed to be. And you know, I was at a school where they were like, don't do more than two sciences, you can't. And I was like, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna have to. And I could do it. Uh, you know, just two years of maturation, I think was a big part of it. And I could do it well, and I was, and I was into it. And I never looked back and enjoyed it, loved it. And I, and I just remember first year medical school after anatomy lab, I'd always park on this parking structure and I'd go up there in the evening and I would just go, oh, I'm so glad I'm doing this. It's so interesting and it's so important. And this was sort of a theme for much of my clinical career was I, I thought what we were doing was so important. I mean, this was this was yeah. an important job and you just, you sacrifice for it and that's the way you do it. And uh, it's no longer that way in medicine, I've noticed, and it's a little disconcerting. Yeah. But, le but let me tell you the rest of the story, yeah. lest yep. we digress on that. I, uh, you know, uh, went through my training, then went into an internal medicine residency, then became a chief resident, and then started teaching internal medicine. Along the way there as a resident, uh, someone asked for some help at a psychiatric hospital down the road. I was on the road to be a cardiologist. That's sort of the direction I was going. And I started moonlighting at this psychiatric hospital, and it just was very interesting to me. I always was kind of interested in mental health. As I said, I had my own stuff, and I just got into it and uh, became an expert in the medical care of psychiatric patients ended up becoming their director of medicine. All the while though, 
teaching and doing general medicine. And back that was in a day when you could do, a generalist like me could do ICU medicine. So I spent a lot of my day in the ICU. Yep. I was very good at that stuff. I'd go outpatient. And then the, about three in the afternoon, I'd hit the psychiatric hospital and stayed there till 10 o'clock at night. Along the way, a lot of the medical problems were down in the drug unit. So I started getting interested in that. I liked the culture down there. I liked the patients down there. And I became an expert in drug withdrawal. And the a director asked me to be the assistant director saying, you know, no big deal, just you'll cover me once in a while. And, and then he quit. And then I moved into the director's <laughs> position. No big deal, and, you're going to have my job. Yeah, and I, I had to then really take that very seriously and get board certification. So now I'm board certified in addiction medicine. I'm board certified in general internal medicine. I'm a fellow at the American College of Physicians. I'm a fellow at the American Board of uh, Addiction Medicine. The American College of Physicians where I have my fellowship. And I've taught as an assistant clinical professor in medicine, psychiatry, and adolescent medicine. So I've done a lot of medicine. Reason I wanted to lay that out for the for the viewer and the listener is I think that we live in this era where there's all these experts yeah, oh out boy. there opining about medical issues, oh about my mental God. health issues. I have to imagine it has challenged some of your your goals of being a public voice for these for these issues. Now I've taken the position along the way, it would drive me insane frankly, because I'm like, what? why is that person, why are they listening? They don't know what they're talking about. And that was more so before. You know, I think more uh, well-trained physicians have climbed into the media a little bit. So there's more people that know what they're talking about than there used to be, which is a great relief to me. And I've seen my job now more as I've had this incredibly broad experience of medicine, psychiatry, and addiction medicine that one person just doesn't get anymore. It's just not, there's not one person Is like it because of hyper-specialization? It's hyper-specialization. It's nobody's a workaholic like I was anymore. Or if they are, they don't do all this. And and, and it was weird for an internist to have the jobs I had. Like, you won't find it, it's hard to find an internist in a psychiatric hospital running an addiction service. That's a, a rare, I, the reason I moved into that position, they yeah. kept me in it, is there was a lot of jealousy amongst the psychiatrist. Their fear that the, the patient went on the addiction unit, the director would steal their patient. I didn't want any of that, so I solved their their problem. I was like this oh, neutral figure, and I clung to the job because I knew it was a rare thing. I knew this is very rare for an internist to do this stuff while practicing general medicine, and I had this incredible experience. As a result, I just want to give it back. I just want to use it wherever I can now. So that's kind of my current. How media happened was yeah, just that's the next question. Total so accident, no intention in that direction. I was a third year medical student. I can barely remember the stories now. And we were living about a block away from a radio station that overnight became this dominant radio station in Los Angeles. Los Angeles was a ossified radio, large radio environment where KLOS and KMET and KLAC or something. K something. Yeah, were the, yeah. Were the, were the just, they just dominated. There was just nothing else. And all of a sudden, K-Rock, which was brand new oh, yeah. street, came out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. And people I knew knew people at the station because we were in the neighborhood. And one day they called me and they went, well, they have this show in the middle of the night and the program director wants it to be a community service show and they need some help. And I said, you're in medical school. Maybe you could come on and do a segment called Ask a Surgeon. You'll use big words. It'll be funny. Don't, don't. I'm like, what? what the and technically, you're not a surgeon. Right? I'm not, I wasn't even a doctor yet. I was in medical school, but I was intrigued. Yeah. And okay. I was up to my eyeballs in uh, AIDS patients. I mean, that's mostly what I did the first. So what year is this? This is 83. Okay. And yeah. a lot of the first, like through 88, 89, 
a lot of what I did was HIV and AIDS. And in 1983, we were just starting to call it AIDS. We'd been calling it GRIDS. A few months into me doing radio, we had a causative agent we called HTLV3, if you remember that. We were just defining the epidemiology. Wow. It was this mysterious thing. Right at the front lines. With a 100% fatality rate. I, as a third year medical student, every day was telling somebody they had six months to live, and I was never wrong. It was an, a, a dark period that very few people remember because most people were, are, died, or they were like me, they were sort of early in their career, and, and we were deep in it, and it was, the, it was just a horrible thing. Anyway, you know, I had this opportunity to go on the radio, and I thought, I'll go see what it is. And I brought my textbooks with me, my infectious disease and gynecology textbooks. Did, I had no did idea you have Grey's Anatomy? Did you have I, that I just know for these fun? Were, no, no, because I, I, I moved on beyond that to clinical okay. now. And here were these questions uh, that, you know, were just so important. And they were asking them in the middle of the night to FM Distract, and nobody was talking to young people about AIDS. No buddy. They'd never heard of it. And I thought, oh my God, I have to, I have to come back. And I just said, hey, can I come back every week? It was a week, once a week at midnight. Yeah. And I just kind of came back every week, thought I was doing community service. And I did that once a week for like 10 years. And if I was on call or something, I just didn't go. And it became a bigger part of my life than I ever expected it to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden it went to five nights a week. And by that point I was deep in my workaholism clinically. And I was like, how do I, I'll never go home, I guess. Right. <laughs> but I, it forced me to go home for dinner. So when I started doing that five minutes a week, I'd go home at six o'clock and I'd go back out at 9.30 to do the radio show at 10 o'clock. Did you have a private practice yeah. early on? Still do. I so... still do now. No, no I, I had a general medical practice that was hospital-based and outpatient-based, which you could do in those days, and intensive care medicine too, which I did. I, I volunteered. I, I put myself as a volunteer to New York for a uh, the darkest hours of COVID. And I said, I'll, I'll come and I'll do whatever you ask me to do. They, they had a call for volunteers. As part of that, I went through an interview process and they were shocked that I knew how to do all the things I know from working years and years in an ICU because internists right. just don't do that anymore. So anyway, uh, yeah, I was doing, had a large general practice and then I would do this psychiatric thing, which was initially sort of care, medical care of psychiatric patients and then finally running the addiction program. So you're in Los Angeles. Yeah. You've got this unique blend for an internist of psychiatric yep. experience yep. and dealing Crazy. with all these people. I want to read a quote from The Mirror Effect, okay. which um, is a great way to tee up, I think, a lot of things that I want to talk right. about. So it said you, said, you said in that book, the very wealthy and the very famous have a much closer affinity with the indigent street person than with the rest of us. There's the narcissism, the addiction, even the outlandish dress. Often they don't put great value in relationships. And the bipolar disorder, I should add. <laughs> That's the other thing you see in both populations. So I know you spent, and maybe continue to spend time, and obviously like have shows about this, dealing with people who are, in, who are famous, yeah. celebrities. Yeah. And, and the book talks a lot about that. This book's not, not new, but it's incredibly relevant. Yeah, and uh, what's a shame is that they wouldn't let me put this one chapter I wanted to put in there about other periods of history where there's been this much narcissism and childhood trauma. And I wanted to write about pre-revolutionary France and the probability of mob action and scapegoating and guillotines. Really? Here we are. That tragically feels way more relevant than Here it even did probably 10 years ago. Oh, people thought I was nuts. <laughs> like, what, how do you, you can't say that. I'm just looking at the patterns. It's just, it's inevitable. How did you end up in this um, celebrity situation? Was it because of the radio combined with the medicine that you ended up treating celebrities I, as, I, as much as you have? Okay, so the, the psychiatric hospital I worked at 
It was called Las Encinas Hospital. It was the template for every Happy Acres hospital you ever see in the movie industry through the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. It was fashioned after Las Encinas Hospital because that's where they all went to dry out and deal with their depressions and their suicidality. This was a hospital that specialized in treating the Los Angeles world, which was largely you know, a lot of Hollywood. Yeah, a lot of Hollywood types. And it was a private hospital. It was a four cash only thing back in the day. Not, no, not when I was there, but back in the day, it was this very exclusive thing. And they did a shitty job of some of the stuff they were doing. <laughs> but whatever. I mean, I when I got there, it was like a museum of psychiatry. It was incredible to be able to see and to talk to some of the psychiatrists. They became friends of mine who, who were there during all that. I really got exposed to the history of all this. So I was seeing them in the hospital. I was talking to them on the radio because we'd have right. celebrity guests every yeah. night. Without exception, they'd pull me aside and tell me their uh, and it was always around trauma and narcissism and substances. <laughs> and, and um, you know, and I would, once I got to the point where I was running a program, I'd refer them over to my program. Yeah, you want treatment? We, we have a good team. What is narcissism? Because it's this word that I think we all know colloquially. Yeah. Like, yeah. oh, that person's a narcissist and it, we just mean maybe they're self-absorbed or they it isn't there, that but it, it's what not is it? egotistic it is self-absorbed but it's self-absorbed because of the deep pain they carry around i mean try to smash your finger with a hammer and try not to think about yourself right when you're in pain you tend to focus on self these are people that oftentimes were injured during childhood it's called a narcissistic injury and they don't develop normally they they exit the frame of relating that we need to develop an emotional landscape they just pull out because of the trauma and then they start trying hmm. to get from the world what they need to feel better. And that feeling better often involves feeling bigger and feeling more powerful. And it's it's literally, I heard a psychiatrist define it just a couple of days ago. I, I have a show uh, Wednesdays, if I don't mention this, my wife will kill me, <laughs> at three o'clock where we've been talking to lots of the silenced people from the COVID epidemic. Yeah. And uh, it was, this was Mark McDonald, who's been highly marginalized. But he, he said, you know, a narcissist is, it all leads to narcissism right now. And he said, it's essentially just a, a baby. Imagine a, a, something that does not hmm. develop into a full adult and then gets from the environment what they need to satisfy their whims. That <laughs> sense of, of arrested development, I think, is an interesting it's, it's, way to think it's, about it. It's a little just so to say arrested development. It's, it's really a deeply wounded core. And that core is something that the narcissist is not necessarily in touch with at all. What they're in touch with is what they need from the world and how it makes them feel. And they need to feel powerful and big in order to protect themselves against this weak, painful and often empty feeling inside. Why did you compare these uh, celebrities and what they're going through to, yep. to, to the poor, to the poor, to the indigent? I, I mean, I, we met because we've worked on this uh, homelessness documentary yeah. together beyond homeless. And um, and so that context is lying in the background yep. and you're in LA and homelessness yep. there is a, dis a disaster. Disaster. But this is, you wrote, you wrote this 10 years ago. This is before this was all at the front forefront. Yeah, I was just reporting what I saw. So uh, here I am, I, I thought I had some psychiatric knowledge and I arrive at this hospital in 1985 and I start digging in and really working there regularly, like I was there all the time. And this is what I saw. Now at that point, it was no longer this place that was, you know, cash only for the exclusive. It was a general psychiatric hospital. And so, you know, Medicaid, Medicare, Medi-Cal, insurances, and yeah. wealthy, all mixed together. That's who was there, the very rich and the very poor. And I, it struck me. It was so striking. 
that the these the conditions that these two populations were suffering from was it would manifest differently, but it was the same. It was very much the same. A lot of trauma. Yeah. Uh, and that's what makes people drive to be so successful. It also is what drives people to be non-functional. A lot of childhood trauma, a lot of addiction, a lot of bipolar disorder, a lot of personality disorder in the narcissistic spectrum. A lot of it, just everybody. Now, not to say there weren't anybody from the middle, of course there were, but boy, I was so, so I was just, I was struck by how true it was that it was mostly the ends of, that how, really it wasn't so much that it was exclusively those people in the in the hospital, it was that, they were so similar, and that was really striking to me, that the psychiatric problems of the very rich and the very poor were the same. Could it be partly also a, um, a sort of selection bias? So, like you said, an extreme personality. I mean, to yeah. go into entertainment, to get to... Yeah. To end up being like Tom Cruise. Right, it can go one of two ways. You kind right? of need to be a little bit of a crazy person, because yes. how else are you going to survive that no, that's gauntlet? Right. That's right, and same thing on the business side. I mean, hypomania is a very common thing. I Look at President, former President Trump. That was That's hypomania, that not sleeping and being able to work. I'm not, I'm not saying he's bipolar. I'm saying business people frequently have hypomanic types of symptoms where they don't sleep and they work excessively. Sometimes that slips into bipolar disorder, and there it is. And now, if you have bipolar disorder, you also can, you know, do all kinds of extreme behaviors, spend your money, gamble, and yeah. you end up over here now. You're <laughs> now you're on the street. So there's a lot going on between these two populations that are of the same source. What is the mirror effect? I'll be honest, I didn't like the construct fully. It was made up. Dr. Young, who I wrote the book with, really liked it, and I kind of went with it because it had relevance, which is that. What we were seeing in the media was a mirror of what was going on in so much of this country, and it was amplifying the issues. Now, uh, if I were <laughs> if I were creating the mirror effect today, I would focus it on social media, mm -hmm. and I would say it's categorically happening. Yes. <laughs> Back then, I wasn't sure it was yeah. happening. Now, I'm sure it's happening, I, and it's not even so much mirroring so much as inciting you know it's 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 just it's just stimulating in ways that are just not healthy the reason for this conversation in so many ways is that um dad saves america began because i saw in my son's life thankfully not with him but yeah. with his peers levels of anxiety mm -hmm. and disordered behavior oh, yeah. that were hard to understand. I mean, it's, yeah. it's obviously people are talking about it now in a big way. Yes. It just seems very connected to everything you're talking about. Yes, I, the, the data is clear. Now we have the data. It's it's associated with adverse mental health outcomes. Period. End. It's not it's not open for debate anymore. The question is, how do you manage it, and how do you really understand the depths of it? Is there, is there an intermediate zone we can get into? Because how do you live without social media in today's world? Which is what parents always ask. You know, how can right. I? Uh, my my friends that really that are that are mental health professionals, that really work in this area in terms of adolescents that are harmed by social media, particularly females. She's one of my friends specializes in this, and she will allow her kids on a screen one hour a day, and that's it. Period. End of story. So when you really know something about it, it motivates you to really restrict all that access. How should parents think about what their kids are confronting in this, you know, not just about social media, well, but the mental health sort of landscape? Because so, the other thing that seems like is happening is there's some kind of, there's almost like rewards oh, yeah. for having trouble, oh. not just on, online, but in school. Oh, and, yeah. It's, you, you develop status. 
status is enhanced by being having a mental health issue, really, quite literally. But I, I don't I don't know how to deal with that, frankly. We'll think about it. Yeah. But let me just answer your question about what's going on. So two simple things. One is humans can be very happy until they compare themselves to someone else that has something more, and then we became we become unhappy. That's a universal human principle. So Instagram is where people are presenting these pseudo selves and these you know these highly glamorized versions of themselves that makes everybody else feel bad. So that's guaranteed. You're going to feel less than. You're going to your your worth is going to be diminished. It's going to be a problem. On the other side, you know, sort of on the text, sort of Twitter sort of area, go spend a little time there so you feel, <laughs> see so you feel about yeah. things. I, I, any, an adult with, it, with a regulatory system that can emo regulate our emotions, you feel terrible. You feel like very quickly. I'm beginning to wonder how much of it is manufactured by the algorithms and bots and things, but it, it really is a vitriolic environment that there's no way you can sustain a positive affect. It just makes you feel terrible. Just staring at it for half an hour. and But it's so sticky that you keep going. Yeah. And it's designed to addict you, addict you. It's all designed to addict you, every bit of it. They know what they're doing. And they've done it. Well done. Congratulations. Uh, addiction is never a great state for a human to be in. What is addiction? Like, how should I think about what addiction well, actually is? All right, so so there's dependency, which is, you know, you, you start something and you get tolerant to it and you can't stop. That's any human can become tolerant to just about anything, to benzodiazepines, to opiates, to Twitter. So there, I really think of it more as, as a dependency than addiction, because addiction is a separate category. It's a genetic disorder. It activates a certain region of the brain that causes us to be unable to stop, even when we don't like it anymore, even when it doesn't work, even when it destroys us, we still can't stop. It's about the not stopping. With dependency, we can stop, we just tend not to. And why is that? I mean, I mean, obviously, dependency. You'd have to be. You have to be. You have to go cold turkey. You have to. You have to withdraw. You have to be off of it, and you have to stay off it. And maybe you can. Maybe you can go back in some sort of limited way. Because again, you don't necessarily. If you have addiction, you can't go back at all. Addiction. If you massage that part of your brain, the whole thing reawakens, and off you go. With dependency, which we're all prone to, it just sort of sneaks back. It just sneaks back. It's like like a diet or anything else we try to do. It's, yeah. People are hard to change, and when these things are so stimulating. It's very hard. I mean, I know for myself, uh, you know, I work with um, my best friend since fifth grade, Josh. He's our head of post-production. And he's like my guardian angel because he will sometimes put me aside and be like, you're, you're getting too, Stop you're not it. getting good on, yeah. on, on Facebook. Yes. And it so, is, so I, know, I know it firsthand, like the worst angel of the nature. I don't entirely know why. Why you get there. But I, like some of it's the feedback loop. Because yes. it's like, oh, if you just are re reasonable, or measured, or the kind of thing that I try to do in these conversations. Um, People will understand me, and they'll be like, they'll support. Oh, well, but there's a little bit of this, yeah. but it's also this is the other side of the story that doesn't get any traction. But if you're like everything's going to hell, and the communists are taking over the country, like boom, there you go, you're you're in. Well, there's a reason the algorithms are secret because they don't want you to know what they're doing, right? They just really don't want you to know, and and they know what they're doing. They are hooking you, and they're hooking everybody else. And they're siloing the information, and they don't give it. Because they just need to sell ads and, and get your information. I, it's really pathetic, but that's that's where we are. When I think about Twitter, I just think about it as it's the worst angels of our nature. It's the the non-angels of our nature. And the the fact that people get off on outrage and, and and harming other people or criticizing other people, it's never good for humans to be in a scapegoating mode or to be 
all negative. That's not how we achieve health. Yeah. Uh, so it's not just on that basis. It's not good for us. You were sounding the alarm with this book. Yeah. Um, it's a long time ago. Like before, fi- like, fifteen years ago. Yeah. Right? It's and it was interesting because I was like, I know this is an older book, but man, it just there's so no, there's I know so much in there. it. Yeah, I know it's all there. I did, this was the setup. And As we say, all roads lead to narcissism. This is still all a function of narcissism. It's just a new, you know, way of acting it out and, and accelerating the, the the effects of it. Now you actually can become a celebrity as an individual. Yeah. Without you say this in the book in many different cases, without necessarily having any particular skill. Right. Like you're not necessarily a great actor. Right. Or great at anything else other than maybe having a boisterous personality or right. some or or being interested in a niche, whether it's video games and streaming or, or whatever, or makeup. Well, let me tell you, in, in this book, well, we, we did research, right? We, we have the only research on celebrities. No one could get access to enough celebrities to do research. I'm, I had someone come in the radio studio every night, so we would, right. just, we would do these narcissistic inv- inventories on them. And can I stop and just ask, narcissistic inventory, it's an, what is that? It's an old test, uh, it's a forced choice, multi, two, two, you know, yes, no kind of question. Um, or pick one of these two, and you're forced to pick one. There's like 30 questions or 35 questions, and how you answer it has high predictive value in terms of your probability of having narcissistic traits. And it holds up? It's it, it it's, valid? It's, it is time. It's used for, this is 15 years ago. They're still using it. And, yeah. and it is a, it's not way of diagnosing a disorder, but it categorically is very good at, at showing traits and trends in narcissism. A movie star comes into the show, yeah. and you're like, "Before we start the conversation, please fill out this form well, and sign a release or whatever." And and they would all go, "Oh my God, this is great! I know I'm fucked up. I can't wait to be a part of this. And tell me what I what happens. Tell me what you find out because I know I'm a mess." Every single person said that. They were all interested in knowing why they're such a mess. Now, here's what we found uh, to your point about not having a skill set and and being being in media. Yeah. The Tila Tequila. Right. Explosion. We found there. This is now old news for like, like my son probably doesn't even know who Tila Tequila is. He has no <laughs> idea, trust me. <laughs> Some uh, Gen X stuff going yes, on. Yes, that's Gen X stuff. <laughs> it, it, we found that people who went on reality shows, which was a new thing then, right? right. It was yeah. just, you know, season two of Survivor when we were doing this, had the by far the highest probability of narcissistic issues, particularly the women. I don't know if that'll hold up today, hmm. but back then it was female. So Amarosa on The Apprentice is worse than uh, the, the the biggest starlet in Hollywood. Well, the really the real differentiation was as opposed to people who had a skill set that maybe drove them to media, and there was sort of narcissism in that. But having a skill set like I'm a I'm a journalist, I'm a news broadcaster, I'm a cellist, I'm a violinist. Those people had the lowest narcissism as compared to the reality show participants who are coming on because, hey, it's me. Of course you're gonna to wanna to watch me, it's me. And, and think about it, back then, <laughs> that's all reality was, right? right. People who right. were kind of, I have served, you know, having been involved with these shows since, they were selecting for that. And they continue to do so, by the way. They, they select for personality disorders because they are dramatic. I mean, oh, right. what, what is human drama? What is human drama? What was Shakespeare? What, was, what were the Greeks looking at? Sick people acting sick. Healthy people are not very interesting. Was it Tolstoy that said that? 
you know, fall, healthy families are all the same and right. sick families are all different all in their different. own way. And it's true. We don't, we're not interested in healthy people. We're interested in sick people. I'm, I'm, that's why I spent all these years in a psychiatric hospital. I'm, I am fascinated by the human experience when it goes off the rails. I'm going to ask you an uncomfortable question. Yeah. Did you take the test yourself and how did it score? You know, I, I, um, I had the exact same reaction that Howard Stern did. I, I scored rather low, oh. but, but I thought, but that was after 10 years of therapy. I bet I would have scored quite a bit higher. Howard said the exact same thing. He said, I, if I hadn't had therapy, it would not have been the same score. And I think that's right. And by the Weird. way, too, too low is not good either. Too, you need a, there's such a thing as healthy narcissism. You want to have a certain amount of concern about yourself and your well-being and getting things out of the environment. I mean, it's a normal human thing. Well, right, because you don't want people to be able to walk all over exactly. you and take advantage of you for exactly. sure. Exactly. And, but that's more dependency. And this isn't, you know, low on that scale isn't so much about dependency so much as it's just good to have a little bit of, <laughs> of some primary narcissism. Yeah. Well, isn't this kind of self-help gone wrong? Like oh, this, yeah. You know, you were coming into your early practice in the early 80s. You yeah. had this self-help movement in the 70s. Yeah. And so all we are constantly talking about is what's good for me. Yeah. I need to love myself. Yeah. Well, let me you stop. Know, how you. do you think about that? Well, I, I have a lot of thoughts about it because <laughs> because I got to see the historical sweep on this, and I remember the '70s, and there was just one news broadcast and news story after another about the me generation. The, remember the me generation? This was all about <laughs> me, 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 me. And I will never forget. I saw a therapist. I don't even know what show it was. God, it's funny. I, I hadn't thought about this image in a long time, but this woman was saying, yeah, they're going out and they're doing Lifespring and Est and all these different programs and they're coming out of these things like, yeah, me is all that matters. And they're doing untold harm to many other people, particularly people they're supposed to care about. They would destroy families, they would neglect their children. And it's me, man, it's all me. And what I saw in the late 80s was there was a more sinister part of that too, which hmm. includes sexuality and sexual, the sexual revolution and it's whatever you're into, man. The kids, they're just like little sexual beings. You see some of that again lately here too. Oh it's yeah. It's very disturbing to see that again. And that caused a pandemic of childhood sexual and physical abuse because, hey man, it's just, it's me. And they, these are bothering me. Yeah, and you're taking a, it to the, that's dark. It's where, it, it's where it went. By the 90s, that's almost all we were talking to was 25 year olds who'd been the subject of that in childhood. And we're, you know, and then when I was in the psych hospital, if you had bad enough addiction that you need to see me, there was a 100% probability you had childhood physical and sexual abuse, or at least one. So you had said earlier that, that, that this adult manifestation of narcissism yeah. is this interruption of the developmental well, process. And so all that trauma, yeah. then those traumatized people traumatized their kids and screwed up their relationships. And so it's a very hard cycle to get out of, right? Once you get into this hurt people hurting people, as we say, hurt people hurt people, it's hard to pull out of it. It's hard. The, the only, in fact, one of the, you know, one of the most inspiring ways people come out of it is actually twelve-step recovery, that kind of thing. That's where people yeah. really do come out of this stuff and can make a difference and have an impact on people that they're around. It look, what makes life meaningful is our relationships, not me. It's us. It's really where all meaning comes from. It's having, you know, at the end of life when people are trying to make meaning, and I've been here with many people. It's always about the important relationships that gave life its meaning, what they were able to do to contribute to other people's well-being, maybe not just their family, and then gratitude for that. So it's service and gratitude are huge. 
And if you are only worried about yourself and not thinking about other people, you're gonna miss what makes life meaningful. How should I think about, especially like as a parent, what is happening that I need to protect to allow to happen developmentally? So if, if an abusive circumstance interrupts a process yeah. and prevents this process of maturation from yeah. happening, yeah. What is that maturation process? What, what, has, what has been lost? Let's take, for instance, my drug addict patients. Why do they do drugs, right? Why do they start in the first place, right? People understand that addiction is a biological thing, but then they'll very often resentfully say, but why'd they start? Well, they start because they can't regulate their emotions. Emotions are too prolonged, too intense, and too negative, which begs the question, how do people develop a flexible, regulatory system normally, right? Yeah. That's an abnormal system. Yeah, that's the question. So normally, it's, it's a little bit involved. Uh, I, I would refer people to a guy named Stephen Porges and Alan Shore where this biology has been worked out, and Peter Fonagy. It's essentially a socio-emotional exchange system that is embedded in our face and our body. We, we, we neglect the fact that feelings come out of the body. We're, you know, we had the decade of the brain and the brain was looked at from separate from the body. No, 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 the brain is embedded in a body. The body is where feelings come from. And those feelings are affected by this socio-emotional exchange system, which is starts at infancy and essentially me having emotions that wash over me that I can't identify, you reflecting them back to me, appreciating them, like not being, not catching them, but understanding them, relating to them, feeling them to some extent and reflecting back on your face, that understanding, I get felt, I feel felt, and I have a second order representation of those feelings, and that's the exchange unit that has to happen millions of times. Right. If we get traumatized, it's a very tender, trusting, close place to be with another human. And when we're traumatized, we exit that frame and will not go back. So if somebody, so what does that mean when you say exit that frame? Does it mean that I I, I can't bring myself to have that in, like the, the closeness? Like, you won't. You like won't. I just uh, you know I'm keeping you, you at arm's length. You you will if you come into closeness after trauma, you will be like you will not open yourself to it. You'll be on guard. You'll be manipulating. You'll be checking. You oh, know, yeah. You'll be I doing. Never... You'll be developing all these strategies. Um, imagine mom is an alcoholic. Okay, and mom traumatized me and drunk. And now when I come back in, I'm gonna be like, okay, let's make sure she doesn't drink. Let's, let's, what, what, she seems a little angry. What's gonna happen next? I gotta, I gotta keep her kind of, right. everything is about denying my feelings and affecting yours. That's codependency. I'm gonna regulate your feelings and not worry about mine. So basically it's like the guards go up and- Well, you literally, because you haven't developed a, a firm connection with all these feeling states in terms of regulating them and understanding them and naming them even, you just disconnect from them to some extent. And there's many different kinds of disconnecting. There, you can actually disconnect from your body as part of this too. So it's it's called dissociation essentially. It's a, there's, there's a somatoform dissociation, there's psychological dissociation. Is You just distance yourself from everything and focus on <laughs> what's going on out here so I don't right. get hurt again. The other thing that I, I'm curious what your understanding and your experiences of is, is the extent to which some of these things that hurt people and that impact them are contagious socially. So I, my understanding is it's, it's, it's been established that bulimia and anorexia are, are actually contagious disorders, yes. that they can be socially transmitted yes. through, through, through some peer process. Yes. It seems like that's happening with gender dysphoria too. There's, there's a lot of stuff going on and now it's happening on a mass scale because of the 
technology. Yeah. What's your experience with this sort of socially contagious well, there's, trauma and, and mental illness? There, there, there's sort of several sort of topics to cover. One is actual contagion, right? My misery is caught by you. And that happens. I mean, because you know, like I said, hurt people hurt people. We will act out in ways and, you know, make other people feel our pain, project. There's something called projective identification even, where I'll push feelings into you subconsciously. It's a whole thing that cluster B personalities do. It's in the book. <laughs> and so yeah, yeah. Uh, there is actually a contagion. And by the way, there's a contagion that we all understand when we watch a movie or we see a newsreel. It's yeah. like, it's, we catch the feelings we're seeing. You know, right. That's a normal human thing. So there is a contagion phenomenon. The, the primary sort of defense against contagion is boundaries, okay? If you've been the subject of trauma, your boundaries are no good. Somebody violated those boundaries, and so you don't have the establishment over time of good boundaries. So we're prone to catch things. So already somebody that has, is struggling with emotional regulation will be prone to stuff from the outside, whether it is contagion of an emotional content or contagion of a behavioral content, right? So suicide, contagion. Means of suicide, contagion. Cutting, contagion. Eating disorders, contagion. So these things all have some element. You, you could frame it differently and say it's a socio-historical context, but it's still kind of a contagion either way. Yeah, I, there's these words. Context is like one of these words that we have now that is, has become like, well, wait, what do you... What do you mean by context? No, <laughs> what exactly I know it's is that? very hard to know what people mean about <laughs> anything, frankly. Some other stuff. There's some other There's stuff, other stuff that we're to not consider. talking about. Yeah. There's other um, stuff to consider. You know, navigating that as a parent right now is especially difficult. Well, and then there's your fomite. You know, when right. we talk about infecting yeah. objects, this is what's infectious, this thing. The, the phone, I mean, that's our infecting agent. It's not even the other person so much as the, the electronics. One of the other things that seems like it's a magnifier. You know, you talk about a lot in the book. You've, you've dealt with a lot in your professional life. And yeah. that is, um, you know, we're talking about these companies and their algorithms, but it does seem like maybe their algorithm is really just trying to supercharge human nature. The, if it benefits them, if it gets them where they want to go, yeah, sure. Well, and like, I, I would think, I think more of it's like a taking advantage of human nature. We get supercharged <laughs> emotional problems from it, but it's, it's taking advantage of how we are. Look, I have a very, I have a positive bias. I, you know, people have cognitive biases. Yeah. Mine is a positive bias. I, I think the best. I think I expect the best outcomes. I think the best of people. So because of my positive bias, my assumption is these people don't mean ill. Right. They are probably trying to figure out how to make it good all the time. But ultimately, they're responding to these measurements and and their profits and whatnot that are the immediate feedback to the choices they make. So while they're telling themselves they're trying to do good, they are not. Now, even I with a positive bias can say that about them. I would like to see them actually do good. And it's getting worse and worse all the time. And now we have the government involving themselves with the social media platforms. It's just truly unbelievable to me. Well, and it's part of, I have this little phrase I like to use, which you have a similar one. You called this this uh, the celebrity industrial complex. Yeah. And I see a lot of what's happening. They're not just social media. Social media is a part of it, but the news media, which you talk about oh, a lot, yeah. traditional media, it, is a uh, the fear industrial complex. Oh, I like that. Which I is dig that. How I dig that. Like that fear center is so pr is so primordial. Yes. It's so act. It it activates us 
I am now, if, I, if, I don't, if I'm comfortable, right. I'm not animated to action. But if you get me on alert because I'm, I should be worried, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, yeah. we're on the verge tell of me civil more, war. Tell me more, oh, And yeah. so the doom scrolling. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so this was, we make a point here that a lot of the celebrity industrial contact, uh, complex was because uh, the news media was not spending money on news collection anymore. And an easy uh, way to get news was through celebrity news. And they would con consolidate all of yes. their journalistic uh, sort of efforts, close down all their shops, and just report on what's on TMZ and what the news, you know, what the latest celebrity news is, and get more eyes. And that's the really important thing, mm -hmm. is that they are, you know, I remember when I was a kid, I, I saw like a, it was must have been a sixty minutes report or something. I, you're making me think about all these things from the <laughs> distant past. Um, and it was interviewing a Russian journalist, and this sixty minutes journalist was just railing on the guy about the propaganda and that the fact that the state had control of what they were doing. And finally, he goes, "Hey, he goes, look, media is a political enterprise. In your world, it's a commercial enterprise. Trust me, the distortions will be just as bad or the same." I'll I never forget that. We've clearly seen that. And now we've that. got we've actually come all the way together with political and commercial in in this world and it's maybe worse than what they were doing in Russia at the time. At least everyone knew what they were doing. Now it's obscure to us. Well, there's a new part of our world which is silence everybody else, which is a weird instinct in America. And I want to get to yeah, that for yeah. sure. I, I there was a quote you, you were talking about that you're willing to go and talk to any outlet except the LA Times. Mm. And you said they distort and yeah. they mislead. Yeah. And they take things out of context. Yep. I'm really stunned at how shoddy their journalism is, so yes. I stopped talking to them. Yes. Now, I, I want to hear why the LA Times warranted this. I'm surprised that this quote isn't just simply applied to virtually all of them. Oh, it is now, <laughs> 100%. I do not do print interviews, period. So why? And, and when I have broken that rule, I did so about a year ago, and let me tell you what happened. And okay. I vowed again, I will never do this. LA Times, uh, one of the LA County Board of Supervisors begged me to come on the LASA committee, which is the committee that allocates resources for the, uh, for the homeless in LA County. And I was like, oh, it sounds insufferable. I don't want to do this. I, I'm, you know, mm -hmm. I, and she like, she really came at me and I said, okay, I, I should really be open to this. I should go learn what they're doing. I should just sit quietly and come in with an sure. open mind and an open heart. And she said, would you please talk to this one reporter? She's great, she's not a problem. Jackie, ooh, I should remember her name because she is just a disgusting wretch. <laughs> uh, so she she writes an article, uh, and I and I said exactly what I just said to you. I'm going with an open heart, open mind, and she had no questions about my training or my expertise or where I came from. Um, she so writes just, an article. Help me understand. So this is a commission for Los Angeles County or well, for LA the state? County, okay. LA County. Okay. Just distribution of resources, which was billions and billions and billions of dollars, oh, yeah. which people don't understand. I just want, I, and there's not a doctor or a nurse anywhere in any of these organizations, and yet this is all just a giant outdoor hospital, but okay. So I thought, wow, that'll be interesting, so I'll just keep my mouth shut, and I said, I was going open heart, open mind, I want to learn, which is absolutely the reason I did it. She writes an article where she says, this is outrageous, the, the homeless advocates are beside themselves. She found some homeless advocate who didn't even live in Los Angeles and got all these, saying these horrible things about me, and she then goes, had the temerity to say, well, I check with the state and he does have a license in the state of California. And I, and I was like, I, I was so stunned. I was like, why did you ask me what my training is? I ran an addiction, I worked in psychiatric health for 35 years. What the f 
is the matter with you? What kind of journalist do you call yourself to be? Why don't you ask me what my training is? Why don't you check with the American College of Physicians? What is in the hell is wrong with you? It was, it was just disgusting and shocking. And I thought, this is Gelman wow. Amnesia, everybody. This is Gelman Amnesia. Do you know what Gelman Amnesia is? I don't. Famous physicist named Dr. Gelman. It's fashioned after him. He would look at the paper regularly, read it all the way through, and he noticed that whenever it was an article about his area of physics, it was a million miles from the truth. It was wrong. It was inaccurate. It was right. all and yet he'd forget when he'd read about complex international affairs. He assumed oh. they reported that accurately. Just physics, they didn't get right. No, they get it all wrong. All you need to do is have them write an article about you, and you will understand how wrong it was. They did some horrible stuff on me early on that had unbelievable consequences. They published an article where it looked like I owned Las Encinas Hospital, which I never I never really made any money there because it was just a, a labor of love. I just loved working with my team there and stuff. Yeah. And that we were taking advantage of people and people were dying there. It was it was so far from the truth, I, I couldn't believe they were allowed to do it. But that's why the LA Times. And, and now it's everybody. I will not, they, they've all done the same thing. They don't care. They're, they're, they're there to do something outrageous and they see themselves as putting forth a narrative. You never know what that narrative is. Truth begs no alternative. It's it's disgusting. It is disgusting to me. It's very difficult, I think, to try to be open-hearted about some of what we see today in the way people are I treated and covered, right? And I think, you know, you've encountered this, so you've encountered it with, with your homeless advocacy, which is really outrageous because it's like you're trying to help people who are at the margins of our society. I know how to treat these people. They're, they are, they're my patients. And I know what's going to happen if they don't treat them. They're all going to they're going to die. That's what happens. It's a progressive disease that ends in Ill, in death. And I know what to do. I know how we could treat them. I know exactly what to do. It's not that hard. You leave them as they are. They're not. This, you're going to have thousands and th hundreds of thousands of deaths. I want to stay in that space and shift gears for a little bit and and talk about like tap into that experience because those people, even if it's Lindsay Lohan, they are someone's child. Yeah. And help me understand as a parent, what is at my disposal if my child succumbs to this? Once, if, they, if they go start going down this destructive road with, with drugs and mental illness and yeah. the feedback loops. Once they are an adult, literally nothing. Literally nothing. I, I spent- oh, That's painful to hear. <laughs> well, hold on, I'll, I'll qualify it. I spent God knows how many hours trying to help a state senator reopen the Lanterman Petra Short Act. We brought families up there. We had parents who had resources, doctors, a bed, a place that you know, their loved one had schizophrenia out on the streets. We had hundreds of families like this. They were told, get out of here, scram. Who do you think you are telling your son how to live his or her life, your daughter? Who do, who do you think you are? Wait, who, who is saying this? That you're the entire state representative, the, the Congress of the state and the House in, in the state of California takes this attitude. It's a religion for them. The religion is they're free to do whatever they want. They deny the existence of brain diseases, except dementia. If you don't treat dementia, you're guilty of elder abuse. So somebody with dementia with confusion and psychosis and disorganization, you don't treat that person. By the way, oh, you've done something bad to a patient. Mind you, you cannot change the course of dementia, no matter what you do. Hmm. Schizophrenia, you treat it early, they can have vastly improved outcomes, vastly. You let it go, it used to be called dementia precox, because over periods of time, they start to look like demented patients. And that's, that's their great idea there in Sacramento.
So I want to make sure I'm hearing what you're saying, which is that it sounds so that families families have been begging for help. They go up there regularly and beg for help, and they're told to scram. It's it's disgusting. So we, you know, we're here in Austin, Texas. Yes. You probably saw that we have homeless. We have a homelessness challenge here. It's not nothing, as bad as California. Nothing like California. But our city council fashions itself as being like, yeah. the, you know, wannabe San Franciscans. Yes. yes. Those are people's sons and daughters yes. under the bridge, yeah. under the overpass. Yeah. And the official position in at least California, but probably elsewhere, is they're adults. They're living a Correct. lifestyle. Yeah. It's a lifestyle. That's a lifestyle it's a choice. choice. It's a choice. Yeah. I have noticed that most of the serious mental illness seems to be off the street here. This is mostly addiction. And to be fair, most of what's on the streets of Los Angeles is addiction too. But there's a, a little more of a mix there. So let's talk about addiction. So yeah. what What if um, the, the part that all these do-gooders refuse to acknowledge is that addiction is a progressive illness. It progresses. Even if a nurse or a doctor is administering the opiate, it's a progressive illness ends in death. They refuse to acknowledge it. Refuse. Why? I, <laughs> have, I have 40 years of experience treating this thing. You'd think they'd want to hear from me. No, don't want to hear. So it's a religion. It's not a, something based in anything meaningful. So there you go. Uh, so they allow these people to die. They're not in their right mind. When they get better, all of them are pissed at people that left them out there. But there is a part of this that's, that's a little more um, challenging which is it's, it's very hard to get people to get well that don't want to get well, right? Okay, having said that, I sort of specialized in that. I, I found ways to motivate people and to get through to them. That you can, you give, it, you give them enough time, at least for their brain to clear, where they're not on the meth and the opiates all the time, give them a 30 days where they're like thinking again, you'd be surprised how much progress you can make if you understand motivational enhancement and you get a, people around them who have success in recovery, you can really get them better. It's, it's not a problem. I know exactly how to do it, but you need an arc, you need time, you need an arc of care, you need a lot of stuff on the, on the end, including vocational rehab and you know, interpersonal family issues. You gotta deal with all that trauma therapies, but you gotta first make them stop two drugs. And in California, it's legal to do drugs, it's legal to traffic drugs, so it's it's on, and it's not it's not legal to try to get them to stop. It's not legal. I I know I've heard this from family family members and friends who have dealt with this either directly or with their loved ones. Yeah. It's very hard to know when you have crossed over into being an enabler with your compassion. You, you got to go to Al-Anon or a therapist. You have to the, look the disease of addiction. Okay. Did you ever see The Little Shop of Horrors? Oh yeah. The Audrey too. those of you that have never seen Little Shop of Horrors, it's about a plant that eats blood and then eventually eats people. And the unique thing about that plant is if you go near it, it eats you. Right. Unless somebody's pulling you out. It's a perfect model for addiction. That is how addiction works. It's a relational disease. And if you are next to somebody with addiction, you become part of the disease, including myself. So whenever I would see an addict, I always have somebody next to me holding what I call Ariadne's cord, which is the cord for the Ariadne, I guess, uh, what's his name, that went after the Minotaur, <laughs> and he had to pull him out of the maze using a cord. You know, right. He holds the cord as he goes in. That's what you have to do with addiction. That's what the sponsor is with Al-Anon. That's what your therapist would be. Every interaction you have with an addict you love will not suit the addict. It will, it will go the wrong direction. You'll be a part of the system. Even me, with all my years of experience, hmm. I have to have somebody there checking me. 
because you get sucked, you go into the plant. It's just what happens, how it works. What is, what's happening there? Because I do feel like a lot of, a lot of people who have loved ones going through this experience, this, this thing, where they get sucked into the, like this- The vortex. This like, we yeah, call it it's the vortex. Like, you know, for Steve Jobs was famed for being, for being, for creating like a reality distortion field. Yeah. And it sounds like that's what happens. Yeah. They're in survival mode. They're responding to a part of their brain that, uh, that has been usurped. And all the higher functions, reasoning, interpersonal functioning, emotions, all that serve this broken motivation. And part of that is relating to other people and getting from them what they need to serve that broken motivation. So you just become a source for gratifying the addiction, period, period. It's hard to believe that. It's hard for people to get that. It's not a normal state. They're not in their usual state. That's not the person you know and love. They're in a broken state. They can get better, but in that state, you unless you have somebody, I had a nurse who would kick my chair every time I'd start going in. It happened a lot, because you just- you, how, And how did she know? How did she know that was happening? I, the bigger question is, why didn't I know? And it's because <laughs> when you're in that closeness and you're trying to help, they will just take full advantage of that. I've always thought that empathy was one of the most essential human it is, op operations. It, it is, and it is the highest order functions. The last thing to develop in that socio-emotional exchange thing I was yeah. telling you about, it's the thing that develops last and it's what creates great meaning, so yes. Well, and I know I've read um, that there's been studies that, you know, having your dad in your life is a huge driver of whether or not you develop empathy as yes. an adult. Yes, But it sounds like empathy can be quite dangerous. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. That's what I'm hearing you say is that you're in an empathetic you have to have connection and it it's like a it's yeah. like you're opening up the 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 ethernet cable for the virus to come into your system. There's absolutely a great way to to frame it and again this is in the disease of addiction, right? We're talking about strictly in the disease of addiction. Closeness is really what allows for it. Just closeness. And then if you also open yourself in an empathetic way, prepare for stuff. The only defense you have is very 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 good boundaries. And I had to do lots of therapy to get those boundaries squared. See because you know, where you end and another person starts and what are his feelings and what are my feelings, that can be very confusing to people, people, particularly those that are getting under your skin and finding ways to stir your feelings. And again, that's why you sometimes need another person there that helps you sort of, if your boundaries get loose, she can kind of <laughs> take you out of it. I'm going, I'm going somewhere bad. Well, I think empathy's had a little bit of a black eye lately. There's a, there's a Yale psychologist running around saying that empathy is unnecessary and not good and stuff. And whenever I hear somebody say that, I know they're a narcissist. That's a narcissist, <laughs> humbly. Because narcissists, that's their main failing. They can't empathize. And when you don't empathize with other people, it's, it's very hard to, a, a lot of richness of the emotional landscape of human relating is not available to you. How does narcissism interact with the mental health and the addiction component here? How, how do those two things play? Because you know, we, we are seeing, you know, obviously your book and celebrity, those yeah. things are in this toxic stew together. Yeah. Are there specific feedback loops or things that make someone who's suffering with addiction, if they have narcissistic tendencies, it magnifies them? Or does yeah. the narcissistic tendency magnify the addiction? How does that work? So one of the reasons I was so clear about what was happening in, in this particular book is when I arrived at the psychiatric hospital in 1985, there, you have admitting diagnosis sheets, and Axis II was the personality disorders. And at the time, there were all, all A, B, and C, all the different personality represent, you know, disorders represented, OCD and dependency and paranoid, all kinds of stuff. I noticed about 1988, 89, it all started to congeal around cluster B. 
everybody had a cluster B disorder, which is nar which are the narcissistic disorders. So it's borderline sociopath, narcissism, histrionic, less so. By the mid '90s, only that's it. That's all we ever saw. Period. That's it. What and does that, that mean? Where did the other people go? <laughs> they, well, it means everyone's being traumatized. <laughs> that's what that means. And and they all had childhood trauma. That's what that was. So as I've said before. You can get addiction without childhood trauma, but if your addiction gets so bad that you come to my program where I dealt with the sickest of the sick, 100% probability of childhood trauma, and thereby a lot of personality functioning problems in the cluster B territory, particularly when you're using. Uh, addicts always look like sociopaths and, and, and borderline. That's just, what they, that's just how they function. Now, some of that goes away just with stopping doing drugs. And so there's A, what they look like when they're doing drugs, and then there's B, what is their chronic functioning in spite of or with trauma, which is often some of this stuff going on. And that's why, you know, addiction recovery is so much about holding yourself accountable to everything you do. They have to really watch themselves. And, and honesty is the first move. They have to be super honest. And they can't even tell when they're lying or bullshitting or manipulating. So it's hard for them. One of my great skills was I, I could, for some reason, after years and years of dealing with these people, things would come out of my mouth without me thinking about it. And, be, and because I'd had such skill with this, I, I knew it would be right, but it was scary, some of the things I would say. And because Give it was- Give me an example. I had a patient sitting in front of me, he just had a, a third near-death experience and he was sobbing and he was like, oh my God, I'm gonna die, I know it. I really wanna get better. And he was really, I mean, I, he was in pain, I knew it. And it was hard for me to watch. And I wanted to believe him that he wanted to do well because he just nearly died. I mean, of course he wanted to do better. And I'm just listening, all of a sudden I go, you're so full of shit, I don't even know what's going on anymore. And he stopped crying and he looked at me and he goes, I know, I don't know either. What's real, what is it? I don't, I don't know. And I go, you're full of shit. I know that and we can start right there. And that was deeply meaningful to him being sort of, because they, they lose track of where they are and what they're doing because the disease takes over. And so being felt, understood and being contained, that's a meaningful place to start with somebody. An article just came out in Bloomberg about how there's over 70 lawsuits um, that are moving their way through the courts, parents, lawyers, versus the big tech companies. I want to read, um, it's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but it captures, it, it's a snapshot of life for a lot of people's kids right now. A 16-year-old girl in Utah becomes so obsessed with her body image after getting hooked on Instagram that she develops anorexia and bulimia. Mm. A boy from Michigan goes from watching YouTube videos for several hours a day at age nine to binging all night on TikTok and Snapchat, then ends up sharing a nude photo of himself on Snapchat that a stranger circulates online. A Connecticut girl struggles for more than two years with an extreme addiction to Instagram and Snapchat before she succumbs to severe sleep deprivation and depression and takes her own life mm. at age 11. Mm. You're leaving out pornography, which may figure into some of these stories, well, which these kids are being exposed to at average age nine. It's and that is affecting human brains in ways we don't even know. And so that's contributing to some of this compulsivity well, too. I want to read this quote because this would have sounded like a description of the antics of like Paris Hilton types. And but this, these are eight and nine year old kids. Yes. So help me understand what we should do. I mean, obviously limit the use, but unfortunately that's all we can do. And, and, and then if you have a child, the, the other thing that I think I, I emphasize over and over again is know the difference between a parenting problem and a mental health problem. Uh, parents get very confused about that. What do you mean by that? You know, if a kid stays out too late, it's a parenting problem. <laughs> or if they talk back to you, it's a parenting problem. 
But if you find weed in their backpack, that's now a mental health problem. That's gotten so bad that they're 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 using so much that you have you've detected it. It's way more than you. If you detect behaviors that you're worried about that are problematic, cutting, whatever you have access to, trust me, that is just the tip of the iceberg. So they've been hiding it from you for they a long time. They always hide it. No kid is 15, totally forthcoming. It just isn't the way we're constructed. And so if, if you're seeing stuff that feels like a mood disorder, it changes in their clothing, changes in the fingernail color, changes in the kids are hanging out, the sleep-wake cycles are off. Uh, you know, this is a mental health issue. This is time to see a doctor about this. And, and, it's, and the other thing you gotta understand is that treatment works. Treatment really, really, really works. And the sooner you get it, and the, you know, the more you get the, you gotta get the kid to participate, which is really the challenging part of all this. But boy, you have a kid that is participating in any kind of mental health services, count your blessings because they will get better. When, when they're engaged with the process, it works. So it's the ones that are disengaged and won't be a part of it that I worry more about. I think this is especially true for men, but probably for everybody, but especially for men. Help me understand why I should not be un have discomfort with therapy. Is it like, oh, that's for weak people, or there can be a lot of resistance to getting therapy. So there's, oh my God, yes, A. Uh, the woman that drove me over here just today is was from Nicaragua, and she was a sort of a mental health person, and she was saying how impossible it is to get Hispanic cultures to accept like, oh, you're a wimp, services. you're a girly man. Just, we you're handle whatever. it, the church handles it, the family handles it, we don't share our problems, yeah. that kind of thing. And I think in America particularly, that is an immigrant issue. People that come here have a lot of trauma and, and are interested in getting ahead, and that's it. And so any signs of weakness or anything else, just we just work harder, you know, just forge on. So we generally in this country have a problem like that and have a history of that. Men, we hate asking for directions. Of course, we're gonna hate asking for therapy. Of course, it's really hard for us to admit that we need help to anything. So man to man, make the yeah. case. Uh, make the I, case for therapy. What I, is it, what, what, how does it even work? What's it do? It depends, well, there's different kinds of therapy for different situations. I, I had very intensive, emotionally focused therapy and it was the greatest thing I ever did. And it built, geez, it built a, an emotional landscape that allowed me to be present for other people in ways that was just so rewarding and so effective. I can't speak highly enough of the process. It's painless, it doesn't hurt. They, you, they only, you only do what's tolerable in therapy. You know, you don't get, you don't, they don't force you into things that are miserable. That's just re-traumatizes you, particularly if you have a trauma background like I do. It does though take usually our female partners. I'm guessing with gay men that male partners would have the same impact. You need your partner to, to get you in. I, I can only tell you that, you know, when it comes to my medical practice, yeah. the wives are always dragging the men in. The men are not coming on their own, ever. Except when yeah. they're like over 75 years old and sort of used to it. <laughs> they're much older and they have lots of problems. Oh, my grandfather was but, a doctor and he, yeah. he didn't want to go get You're treated right. for that. Uh, I will tell you my story. You know, we have triplets, uh, which was an incredible experience. <laughs> and one year in, one of them had an arachnoid cyst that needed neurosurgery, a brain surgery. My anxiety went crazy. I was a workaholic, I had all this stuff. And I had my pre-existing mood stuff and my other generalized anxiety disorder. <laughs> I, was, I was a mess. But I was succeeding at everything, but by through sheer grit, you know. And my wife called me at work, because of course I was never home. And she goes, um, you need to see a therapist. This is like 1993, something like that. And I was like, yeah, I've been working at the psych hospital for eight years, of course, I want to see a therapist, I'm ready to go, I can't, I've been thinking about that forever, I want to, and she just, she went, no, like that, like, with the hair stood up in the back of my, she goes, right now, 
right now. I'm serious. And I my, literally, I've never had the hair stand up quite so intensely on the back of my neck as that yeah. moment. And I was, I said, got it. I put the phone down. I called a friend. I said, I need a referral right now. And, and I, that's when I went. And I'm not sure when I would have gotten. I would have gotten there eventually, but had she not, with that that incredible, it takes my breath away now. The clarity when she when she approached me, I'm so grateful for it. I'm I'm getting a little emotional because it was. Uh, I'm sure that wasn't easy for her, but you know, I threw all my bullshit just to cut through it all and just go. I mean it. <laughs> Did you ask her what was it about that exact moment in time I, where I she knew, felt the I, clarion call to say like I gotta. I, I knew my anxiety around my son's brain surgery was out of control. I just knew it was terrible. And and it was, and she's the kind of person that gets affected by the anxiety of people around her. And I, I got it. I, I knew it was affecting her. And I knew I was a, I was maniac. I was in denial about the effect I was having on everybody because I was, I was so high functioning. I was, you know, running programs and really effective I'm doing as a great. doctor. I was doing great. Not so much when I got home, if I ever got home. You know, I'd struggle to get home at 10 o'clock at night. And she thought maybe that wasn't such a smart thing, too, with a bunch of kids at home. Do you have any advice for how to make sure you, you have a good therapist? And how trustworthy at this point is the industry? Because Boy. there's some things going on in psychology that give me pause. Oh, absolutely. You know, Jordan Peterson talks about some of this stuff, especially around the gender issues. But it's uh, there is a little bit of, um, like, am I getting a quack? <laughs> Am I right. getting somebody who's not okay. so, here for me, but they've got some other agenda? Right. They've got them some constraints that prevent them here, from here, helping here. me. Yeah. The way, I, like, how do I, how do I suss this out? It, it kind of depends what you need, right? And cognitive behavioral therapy is very popular. To me, cognitive behavioral therapy is good, but it's a short-term solution. It's not a long-term. It doesn't really change who people are. They just assume that you're going to change what you're doing, and that will change who you are. And to some extent, that's true. But I, I'm a bigger fan of a deeper, longer process. I just think people really need that, particularly if they're trauma survivors. So here's the bottom line. It should be somebody with certain letters after their names. And if not them, somebody with those letters after their name should be referring you to the, the next person. So MD, PhD, PsyD, LCSW. That's, those are the letters. The MDs rarely do the work these days, so they usually be referring to you to a PhD, LCSW, or PsyD. But that's the level of training you should have to be able What's to What's that do. L1? I don't know what that it's is. It's a licensed clinical social worker. Generally, I find they have remarkable training and expertise as, as therapists. I wouldn't have predicted that, but that's been my experience. And I've hired many of them. And my own therapist was an LCSW. And I just think they just they just make excellent therapists for whatever it is about that training and who goes into that work, excellent. You should be comfortable, right? You should not feel in any way, um, yeah. you know, that you're there to make the therapist happy or anything else. So because trauma is so common these days, oftentimes you need somebody with specific trauma experience and their trauma therapies. Uh, a way to look for that is EMDR is one of those tra trauma therapies or trauma-focused care. You'll see that in the, in is the that descriptions. The, is that the eye That's treatment? one of the ways, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've heard yeah. that. So it, it seems crazy, but it, it works. It works. It works, <laughs> and it gets added in a different... But, but again, it works in the right hands. You know, my, my, I have certain EMDR therapists I use because they're also deeply empathic and can be with the patient as they go through a very intense process with this. And they're changed by it. The human brain is constructed in such a way that it defends against anything that would change our body, like you know the integrity of our body, and the same as it pertains to ourself. We don't like change. We fight it. And to get better in therapy, you want to change. You want, and you got to be ready to become whoever you need to be. 
and be open to that process and be completely honest. You gotta make sure you're into it too. And by the way, there shouldn't be a lot of talking in the room by the therapist. If there's a lot of therapists doing a lot of talking, I'm suspect, I'm concerned. It should be you, that person deeply attuning to what you're saying and you, you get that they, you see on their face that they, they feel what you're experiencing. They reflect it back to you. And then they say something that moves it forward in a good direction. So one of the reasons why I ask about how should you go about time therapy? Time for you to go? Time to go? Come on now. <laughs> it probably on is. Now. It probably <laughs> is. My wife has had lots of therapy, and she swears by it. I have never mm. gone to therapy. You're and just better. <laughs> no, I'm sure I have all kinds of problems. In my dad's practice, you know, he is a ear, nose, and throat surgeon. Down the hall was, the psych, was a psych, psychiatric practice. Mm. And so I grew up hearing about people that needed a hall pass. But it's, it's kind of like, some of this is bull****. I was raised with a certain amount of, like, some of this head talk is bull. Well, there's two things. Uh, one is that psychiatric illness, you know, psychiatrists deal with serious mental illness. And so that's, you know, that's not you. That's not what we're talking about here. Yeah. I mean, you have a serious mental illness. You need a doctor with expertise in serious mental illness, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, these sorts of things. Your dad's experience was at a time in psychiatry where psychoanalysis had taken over American psychiatry. And it was not good. It didn't have good hmm. outcomes. It didn't do a good job. There's actually a book called Shrink by a psychiatrist that chronicles this history. It was an unfortunate chapter where psychoanalysis just took over psychiatry. What was the time frame that you're talking about here? 30s to 70s. Okay. You know, right when he was, you know, yeah, in medical practice. school. Yeah. And so when I got to the psychiatric hospital, all the psychiatrists that were there that had been there for the previous 20, 30 years were psychoanalysts. And only the newcomers, like my age, people in their 30s were actually trained in psychiatric illness and in modern psychiatry and be, still were doctors. A young man I know went into psychiatry and I just warned him of this one thing. I said, don't forget you're a doctor. This is that you're a physician. These are brain illnesses focused from that perspective. With psychoanalysis, they lost that all completely. They, they were more philosophers and, you know, and they, and they had hubris that was just terrible. They had all the solutions to all the world's ills. What they did, you know, one of the reason we have the homeless problem is three psychoanalysts in sequence uh, took over the National Institute of Mental Health and systematically dismantled the state healthcare system that we had for dealing with serious mental illness. There isn't really a system anymore. There isn't really like, there weren't, there were these state hospitals that maybe were kind of a disaster. And before that, my understanding is that they kind of crowded out a lot of private hospitals. I don't know what the, the I hear issue. all kinds of weird stuff like, oh, Reagan kicked everybody out of the mental hospitals, but I, I think it was actually JFK, like what happened? JFK, his last signature before he went to Dallas, he signed the Community Mental Health Act, which was the brainchild of these psychoanalysts I was telling you about who were gonna do away with hospitals because their position was that hospitals caused mental illness. Think about that. None of them had ever been in a chronic psychiatric hospital, none of these guys. And they were gonna dismantle the entire system with no plan for what to do with the people that came out of the hospitals, none. And of course they went to the streets, the jails, and the nursing homes. Yeah. And these community mental health centers were gonna be built throughout the country to prevent mental illness, something we don't know how to do to this day. And it was- Prevent it. Prevent, they were preventative organizations. They were abject failures, abject failures, and that is what Reagan finally closed mercifully, were the community outpatient centers. Oh, that's, 
But the, the narrative that you hear, by and large, is, oh, well, Reagan, the reason why we have all this homelessness is because Reagan closed all the mental health. Absolutely dis- wrong. Categorically wrong. You read the history. Read your history. It was complicated. It was a complicated deterioration, but it was systematically carried out by the, the National Mental Health or, you know, the, the leaders at that time. And it was well-meaning. It wasn't that they didn't, you know, because some of the hospitals were a disaster. So as opposed to modernizing them and doing a better job and making them what they needed to be, they just cast out people with serious mental illness, and that was that. And then we now put a whole series of laws on top of that that let those patients do whatever they want to do because they're leading their best life. They're leading their best life under, under the 290 expressway. The, the idea that somebody needs custodial care, which is common, is anathema to this philosophy, this theology that they're in. One of the pathways that seems to be a big part of um, homelessness, but also of the traumas that that we've been talking about is family breakdown. And I know you voiced a documentary about the divorce sort of industrial complex. Divorce court, it was called like Divorce Corp. Correct. Why did you voice that documentary? What was the story there? Tell me about he, that. He was a guy that came to me who had been through it. And it was he was a brilliant surgeon biotech researcher. He was a super bright guy. And he said, here, this is what I observed. And I've been sitting in these family courts. And I was persuaded his project was good. And that what he was telling, the story he was telling, was a problem. And I wanted to raise awareness about it. So what is the problem? I, I haven't the, experienced divorce. Um, the the I'm, fundamental I'm problem, it's, it's, I mean, there's lots of problems. But the fundamental problem is family court is separate from any of your other constitutional privileges. You lose your constitutional privileges when you go to family court. And once, you're in, <laughs> yeah, and once you're in family court, the judges, the attorneys, the psychologists are in an extraordinarily chummy situation. And the secondary gains for those folks to just keep churning through the system, doing more psychological testing, demand more things from the spouse, it benefits the system, not the individuals involved. To be fair, they're trying to do much more mediation and that kind of thing to get, get away from that, but the system itself is still deeply problematic. One of the first times I've encountered how big of an issue this is, it's like this giant issue that nobody seems to talk about, was um, another guest uh, you know, and friend, uh, Warren Farrell, who's written The Boy Crisis. And he, he's talked about how not only is it broken and incestuous and weird, but it's, it's systematically against that. Dad is assumed guilty. Oh, yes. And, and, and the women are encouraged to amplify and distort, and they're sort, of, they're sort of told that they're not exerting their rights and privileges if they don't really you know, make this sound as awful as it was, and they're really encouraged to manipulate the system on their own behalf. And men are just completely marginalized. Hey, you want to blame Reagan for something? He, when it was governor in California, he passed no-fault divorce. That's what the rest of the states followed with. That was his thing when he was governor. No-fault divorce is really how things got out of hand. How many of the people you've dealt with have divorce in their, in their past as part of the trauma? I mean, <laughs> I wish it were just divorce. It's usually no, some parent abandoned using in the home, multiple people coming in and out, chaos, abandonment, neglect, all the above. So the family breakdown's almost always present? Almost always, yeah. I mean, it's not a universal feature. Of course, you can come from a decent family and still get serious mental illness, you can get addiction. The family unit, this idea that the family is just another way to do things is absolutely wrong. The reason all cultures throughout history have a nuclear family unit 
is because it serves the need of children. That's how you raise healthy children in a stable, sustained environment. Children perceive families. When families break, they feel broken. They feel abandoned. They feel responsible. That is just a universal feature. Not 100%. I mean, some make it through divorce and are fine. But generally speaking, stable, sustained relationships. The only way you get that time yeah. and the sort of socio-emotional exchange and intimacy that you need to then go translate that out to the world. Without it, you're in big trouble. It's a daunting problem to think about. It's one of these things where it's like, well, if you don't have it as a problem, there's nothing you need to do about it. And if you're in the problem, then you're in the problem. Meaning like, you know, I'm, I'm in a healthy marriage. My parents are still married. What can I do for anyone else to help them not experience family breakdown? One is to, you know, talk about how to have a good relationship and model it and, you know, what it means to live up to a commitment, number one. And number two, don't accept the bullshit that people are trying to foist on everybody. How do you mean? It's just, <laughs> there's a lot of it out there. There's a lot of it. It's all around sort of, hey, families are just one way. It takes a village. We need that families are just one way of doing it. Yeah, yeah, but no. You know, in terms of why it's been the way it is throughout human, whenever somebody says, we have now figured it out, we now know what humans need, stop listening immediately. Stop listening. You're better to go back to the Bible and read that and see what they were doing then. And that's probably a better rendition of, what humans do and need and what makes them better and healthy. It's just, it's just a bunch of wisdom. Use that. Ask grandma. She had it. Uh, in terms of figuring out the new way to do things, God, I lived through that in the 60s and the 70s. It was not good. It was not good. Do you feel like this time we're in right now, you know, you've been subjected to this cancer culture mm. along several dimensions. You know, this is part of that, right? Along several dimensions. <laughs> right? Yeah. But, yes. I mean... In many different ways. There's this feed, it's hard it's to escape. It's scapegoating, it's mob, it's scapegoating. Until we acknowledge what it is, people are gonna keep doing it. And you have to understand, just like when the, you know, the Jacobins put people on the guillotine, eventually the Sankralat put the Jacobins on the guillotine. Everybody goes on the guillotine eventually. That's in the nature of mob behavior and scapegoating. Doesn't spare anyone. No, no one's pure enough. No one is, you know, sancti you know sanctified properly. And everyone gets, until people get just tired of it. Please, let's get tired of this. It feels very t very closely connected to the conversation we've had overall yeah. because yeah. The, it feels like um, I've come across this term, dark triad, which is narcissism. Narcissism, Machiavellianism. And psychopathy. Psychopathy, yeah. What is that? It's a scale much like my narcissism scale. Yeah. And people that rank high on that tr dark triad scale tend to be the people that are causing a lot of the problem. And of course, scapegoating, non-empathic, Envy, we haven't even talked about envy yet. Envy is one of the most destructive of human emotions, and it is alive and well everywhere. Jealousy is you're doing something or have something I want, and I go, I want that. I wish I had that. Good for you, but I wish, I, right. it makes me uncomfortable. I, I want to do that. Envy is f you. I'm going to destroy you because you, you make me feel bad because you have something I don't have. You have, I need to take from you what you have. That's envy. Every religious text out there is just filled with, with caution about envy. It is a horrible human emotion, and narcissism is what sets up envy. Well, and the feedback loops that we're experiencing now, like you, you said earlier, it's like, it, it kind of goes without saying. It's like the en the envy, this thing, yeah, is like, well, a, the, here's I, all the stuff that you should be angry well, yeah. about, and all the stuff you don't have, that why don't you have it, you suck. Right, and so Twitter, in, in, excuse me, Instagram and TikTok are really the, that's the envy zone, because <laughs> you're seeing all this stuff and it makes you feel bad. And if you're prone to envy, feeling bad makes you want to tear down. 
What have you done with your own, you have triplets. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting too, because mm -hmm. you got three fundamentally different people, and yet there's the genetic stuff that maybe makes them more similar than they otherwise would have been. No, no, they're, they're, no, they're, 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 they're fraternal triplets. Oh, they're fraternal oh, triplets, yeah. okay. No, no, they're very different. Oh, so they're very different. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. How have what you've learned in your professional life what did it do for you as a parent? How have you parented? Because you've also got the weird thing of you're a celebrity. Yeah. People know your name. Which has been sort of. So that's weird. Yeah, it is weird. And it's weird for my kids too. And they and I didn't realize it impacted them quite the way it did. They, they didn't like it. Yeah. And I mean, I think about this because like, well, I'm not a celebrity, but like if we succeed with our show and people watch it, like, like it's like, what am I getting it, myself it, into? It, it felt, I think, I'd have to hear, hear, see what they have to say about it. But I, it, my sense is, is it felt like an intrusion to them, and it affected how they felt about me, but I'm not quite sure in what ways. How have you parented? How has your parenting been impacted by your experience with all of this trauma, addiction, yeah. Yeah. and recovery, and seeing what works? What have you done? So a, a couple of caveats. Uh, lots of mental health services when we needed it. We use therapists, we use behavioral, neuro, neurobehaviorists. We use, we've used people along the way and it paid dividends always, including myself, right? So using mental health services, it was for me numero uno where we needed it. Just the way we have pediatricians and doctors and other things to maintain the kid's health. The other thing I did, uh, which I'm you know, still pretty clear about, because I, I was super clear about substance use during adolescence, like, no. I, I, no illegal activities, period. And if you engage in illegal activities, I'll make sure the law comes after you, period. That's it. Now, if you go to a party where another parent thinks it's a good idea to serve alcohol and you're not 21, first of all, what illegal activities do I allow? None, okay. Yeah. Number two, that parent, you should know, is now taking all the responsibility for anything that happens of an adverse outcome at that party. And when it comes to adolescent health, alcohol is always a feature of bad outcome, whether it is fighting, accidents, unwanted pregnancies, STDs, inappropriate yeah. sexual contact, always find alcohol. So that parent is opening themselves up to that liability. But I want you to know, and I, I said this very clearly to them, if that happens and somebody's serving you a beer and you drink, once you know I'm gonna show up with the sheriffs and I'm gonna have their ass called out of the house and I'm gonna be standing on the lawn laughing my ass off. Once you know that, that's what's going to happen. And they were like, okay, they didn't get invited to any parties. So, so, <laughs> so, but I was very clear about it because I was telling parents of adolescents all the time to be very, I mean, no. Just say no and drop the ax. Not, not get angry. It's not about you. Your job is just to drop the ax. And they wouldn't do it and these kids would die. I would see it a lot. And I, it, it informed me. It made me very clear about what my job was. Now, once they were adults, on them. Turned out my daughter developed a cannabis addiction. Now, she heard me talk about recovery. She and I wrote a book about all this stuff, and it doesn't come so clearly into the book, <laughs> but uh, we talk a little bit about it here, and now she knows more what I was meaning. She heard me talk a lot about recovery, and of course, you're, when, you, when you're in recovery or you talk a lot of recovery, kids push back on, ah, no, 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 I, I've got it. She hit a bottom, she immediately got into recovery, and is now a really wonderfully recovering person and is just fully into it, which is just a joy to see at this proximity. I consider myself to be a classical liberal or libertarian. And one of the things that informed that was when I got out of school, I met people who were like highly functioning people who talked about how they'd done like cocaine in high school. And I said, how did you even get it? I was like a nerd. I didn't yeah. get anything. I didn't drink in school. I didn't do anything. So they said, oh, it was way easier to get coke than to get alcohol. 
it opened the door to wait a second. Maybe the drug prohibition isn't doing the thing that is being claimed. My dad, when I went to college, he used to say, he'd call me and he'd only say three things. Don't do drugs, don't get AIDS, don't get anybody pregnant. I'm not worried about anything else. <sighs> you do those, <laughs> don't do those three things and yeah. you'll be fine. Yeah. How do you think about the liberalizing drug world and where we're heading with this and how to communicate this as a parent? Because like you, you said, like, oh, California, you can do whatever you want. Right. Even if it's not technically legal, it's basically de facto legal. It's, yeah, it's legal, officially uh, legal. The other layer here is the rise of, especially among kind of like the intelligentsia of like, um, you know, psilocybin and yeah. Yeah. all these other, these other uh, Drugs, basically, you know, they're yeah. plant-based drugs, but it's all plants. It's all drug. How do you think about this this, it, this it, landscape? It's hard. I, you can only take care of your own family and be as clear as you can possibly be. If you're going to sort of don't say stupid like, hey, if you're going to do it, do it in our house. That that is a that is a full adolescent brains can't do that. Adolescent brains will then do it in your house and do it in somebody else's house and do whatever the hell they want. That's, that's how adolescent brains work. When you say you can do this here, but not here, they just hear you can do this. That's what they hear. So no, do not have them using anything in your house. Number one, do not allow anything illegal. Uh, even if it's just sort of quasi illegal, it's always illegal under the age of 21. There's always consequences for that for all these substances. Everyone at least understands that, that developing brains should not be being exposed to these things. In terms of you know how stringent should these laws be and whatnot, all I know is that when the laws are there, they help me get people sober and keep people sober. When they're not there, it's harder. Uh, it's harder to do because there's no consequence. You know, people, people learn from consequences when it comes to doing drugs. And if you, the legal system precipitates consequences, you can, you can really help them. But if you don't have those consequences, it's not my job to determine what the law should be. It's, that's the position I'm taking, that no one wants to hear from me. They want to determine their own relationship with substances and the legal system, fine. It's interesting to watch the, the case example of cannabis because it's sort of working its way through where people are starting to really understand and learn the reality of that chemical. Um, we'll see, we'll see how much, how many people are hurt in the meantime. What is the reality right now? What's your understanding of, of the current reality of the, that? The reality with cannabis is yeah. that, you know, some people can smoke it or fine and some people get into real trouble with it. And the fact that it is so potent and people are doing dabbing now, which is like meth, cannabis and lighting wax on fire, that we're seeing really serious brain stuff. We're seeing psychotic episodes and things like that. I mean, stuff's happening now. And people are seeing that and learning from that, I think. Um, and some people are getting severely addicted. Not everybody. Some people, they can keep using whatever. I mean, it's just like with alcohol. There's, there's not a lot different, except it's different. <laughs> except it's yeah. different, and people should understand that different. Whether or not it's legal, you know, I, it's going to hurt a lot of people as we go through this learning process, unfortunately. But if that's what the people want, just be careful with kids. Uh, it profoundly affects development. If they're smoking a lot of weed, if you're, and I always just keep telling parents this, if you find weed in their backpack, it's way more of a problem than you know. Get a mental health professional involved because it, it, it does affect development quite substantially. As we wrap up, you know, you've been talking about the value of relationships yeah. through, through, through yes. this entire conversation. Yes. What's changed? Because I think there's something that's changed fundamentally with the technology. Mm. But how are you thinking about the reality? Like we live in this reality where we have these screens, we have this yeah. connectivity. So, so, so how are you navigating it? How do, what's your advice for, for, for me and for parents who want to set their kids up to build 
rich, full, healthy relationships in 2022 yeah. and beyond. The key is spending enough time with that kid face-to-face, -face, having emotions, exchanging emotions, letting them go out in the world, explore, come back and tell you about it. It's called rapprochement. And, they, and then you, you share their delight, you amplify their positive affects. You've got to spend thousands and thousands of hours doing that for every child. And to deny that or let somebody else do that will not do the same thing. And to not deny the kids need that, I'm not saying it has to be mom, it has to be somebody from the gene pool. I mean, ideally mom, dad second, grandma third. It, I would say that would be sort of the order of who needs to spend that time spending, you know, just so much time amplifying and regulating affect in the presence of that child, helping them deal with negative affects, amplifying positive affects, naming them, understanding them. And the important thing to really re just remember is that they feel like they're having relationships online with their friends and peers. This is a pseudo relationship. Human relationships are primarily, at least when they're rich and meaningful, and when they contribute to our mental health, they're bodies in space. It's two yeah. bodies relating. We, we, again, we're too much with the brain. Exchanges going back and forth between two bodies is where is what a relationship is. Now we can kind of, you know, we can keep it along with voice and phone and we can do FaceTime and we can do some, some sort of quasi maneuvers, but we're really not developing that landscape without the time of spending time in the presence of another person. And it's, it's you're, you're absolutely correct. It's where everything comes from. It's where all meaning comes from. I do a lot, you know, death and dying is part of being an internist and people always come to the same conclusion. It was the important relationships that give life its meaning. And if you're extra lucky, it's also what you're able to do for them and contribute and be grateful for all that. Then you're really in a good place. You, uh, early in the conversation, said you're, you're, you have a cognitive bias towards optimism. I do. And I know that um, in a recent conversation, I think it was with Tim Poole, perhaps, you were confronted with, like, he's got this sense of like, whoa, we're on the verge of civil war in this country. It's and bothered me, it stayed with me since he said <laughs> that. Are you an optimist? Uh, and are you optimist about the country, about, about, about the human condition? I don't understand anyone who isn't completely fascinated by the human experience. I, I don't understand it. It's everything to the human. It's other people in our history and our literature and our experiences together. I mean, it's everything. And people that don't like people or can't be close to people or don't appreciate the human experience, I, I'm really confused by it. So I naturally love this thing uh, we call humanity. I'm cognitively biased. It's a, it's a distortion, right? I'm biased <laughs> in a positive direction. There is such a thing as a negative bias, and I need those people around. As a cognitive psychologist explained to me, people with a cognitive bias would go out and kill the kill the, the mammoth, and people with a negative bias would stay back at the fire and keep everything safe at the hearth. And we need both, we need yeah. both. And I try to pay attention to my cognitive bias. I get into trouble because my cognitive bias is, is too positive. So I miss things, and, I, and I, that's one thing that I think COVID taught me. I, I really gotta pay attention to hubris, which is never a good thing, and it's, this business encourages hubris. <laughs> and our biases, just pay attention to cognitive dissonance, positive negative biases, you know, reasoning from conclusion, all these things, you know, that we have in our systems that are not just glitches, they're features of our cognitive system. Be aware of them. You've been telling your story for decades. How do you think about your role in the American story? This is Dad Saves America, and the reason why it's called that is because I believe the dads and that we all have a role to play in making the country better. We're, mm. we're part of it. How do you think of your story in that context of being an American? 
I feel sort of overwhelmed when you ask that. Like it's too, I humbly, I don't know. I, it, 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 I feel too humble to say that I've, I've had an effect on the American system. I, I've tried to take care of my family, help people that are my patients and people that you know call me on the radio, whatever it is. I guess I have, you know, I have a low self-esteem as Adam and I always talk about. Low self-esteem is not as bad. By the way, the whole esteem movement was a disaster. Don't worry about high self-esteem. Low self-esteem is a good thing. It makes you do better, makes you check yourself all the time. It doesn't feel bad to have a low self-esteem if you also have a regulatory system that's working um, and you have good relationships. Low self-esteem is just keeps you honest and humble. So I don't know that I even feel up to that question except to say that I am in awe of the American experience. And if I can have contributed to it in the slightest way, I'm fascinated by a federal government. I'm fascinated by the men and women that established this country, worried about the present moment, both in terms of you know, who's in, who our politicians are, and what's happening to our kids because of these very powerful uh, algorithms and mediums that we're being exposed to. But I remain positive. I, I remain, I, I think the genius of what this was uh, will prevail. And so if I can contribute to that in any small way, I am grateful. It's a great place to stop. Drew, thanks for Thank you. being on Dad Saves America. I hope we do. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Dad Saves America podcast. If you did, make sure to subscribe so you won't miss the next episode. It also really helps us out when you leave us a good rating wherever you listen to podcasts. For more content like this, including video versions of these conversations, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash dadsavesamerica.